The biggest lesson I took out of sport and swimming was that you have to have outcomes that you're in control of and objectives that are purely based on you and are not subjective and are not reliant on how anyone else does because otherwise you risk you run the risk of never being fulfilled. You can't change the whole world in one go, but you can change someone's world. And if an individual or a group of people end up with a more positive and a more equitable experience in whatever walk of life that they are trying to travel down, then that for me is also success. Welcome back to the Success and Ideas podcast. I'm Richard Myron. This is the podcast where I pursue my interest in trying to understand personal success. Firstly, how do you define it? And then how do you achieve it? Is it about good ideas, great leadership, luck, or something altogether different? In this second season, we're widening our net in talking to people who've succeeded in different areas, often overcoming significant challenges and obstacles. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Liz Johnson. Liz is a swimming champion, a medal-winning athlete who has a cabinet full of trophies and medals won in international competitions. But Liz was born with cerebral palsy, which affects movement and muscle development. As a young child, she started swimming to strengthen her body, and I think it's fair to observe that she took to the pool like a duck to water. By the age of 14, Liz was selected to join Team GB's Paralympic squad, and from there, she went on to become a swimming sensation. She's one of a very select few to have won gold medals in the Paralympics, the World Championships, and the European Championships. Having achieved so much in the pool, Liz is now focusing her energy on ways to help people with disabilities enter the workplace and fulfil their potential. In 2018, she co-founded The Ability People, or TAP. It works within companies to create real change and meaningful inclusion. And if that wasn't all impressive enough, she's also competed on Celebrity MasterChef in 2016. And her recipe for chicken fajitas with tequila is one I aim to replicate. Liz, thank you for joining me. You're in Brazil, where your husband's from. Uh, One request, please don't mention sunny beaches or sunshine too often. I'll try not to. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't want to say what the weather's like here in London at the moment. Liz, I spoke there about, you know, your many achievements and, of course, the fact that you were born with cerebral palsy. When did you become aware of your physical difference and that possibly it could constrain you? I became very aware very quickly because because it affects me functionally. It was it's very obvious I do things differently to other people. My cousin's exactly a month older than me, so it led to quite an early diagnosis because my mum was not comparing in a in a bad way, but just like her attention was drawn to things that he was managing to do that I wasn't. So in that sense, I've always been aware of who I am and how, how my cerebral palsy differentiates me from other people. But I would say I was actually pretty naive to the system and society and how that would impact me living with a disability and how it would disable me at times. Because as a child, you don't have that level of independence. You're in your protected bubble. 
And actually, I was very fortunate that my my people, I guess, put a lot of time and effort into making sure that I had the best chance to succeed like everybody else did. Um, so as a child, you're not aware of all that effort that's going into making that happen. So, you know, making sure they choose the right school and making sure they choose the right footwear and making sure all of those things just happen as a child anyway. So I would say the my awareness of how it would result in me being treated differently or having different experiences probably wasn't until I was a bit older. Do you think there's something there in that one's personal approach to disability can be defined either by what you can do or what you can't do, how your disability defines you, you know, by its constraints or by what your personal possibilities are? I think it's a bit of both. There's a perception of what you can't do. And that's the same whether we're talking about an impairment and a disability or, or actually just a circumstance. There's this perception that can then influence the opportunities that you get and the way that you're supported, the amount of effort that people put into you, in inverted commas. And I actually think that's the biggest constraint on any individual, regardless of whether they have a disability or not. It's other people's attitudes and, and barriers that exist within society. But obviously there is also that element of personality. It's, it's that nature-nurture type thing. Mm-hmm. My personality is quite competitive, naturally. Yes. Um, and as a result, I think that definitely helped. Now, I said in the intro there that you joined Team GB at the age of 14. What's it like? What's the excitement of that level of competition like? What does it do to you? Is there just this huge adrenaline rush and this sense that I must win, an obsessive sort of desire to win? For me, yeah, like I was first 13, 14 when I started breaking into that environment. And this was the first time that I'd met people who were like me in a circumstance like mine. And like I said, I'd always been competitive. So I'd played sport my whole life. And you don't realise it at the time, but you're having to work like 10 times as hard just to to maybe get to the same result as your, your peers that don't have disabilities. And so it was the one time where I could, it was where I could finally be myself, even though I hadn't realised I wasn't being myself. So my motivation became, I want to be that good and I want to go away with that team and I want to be with those people and I want to work as hard as I can to be as good as I can so that I'm on that team with them. That helps because then you don't, when you come up against the barrier, you're not, you don't obsess over the barrier, but you're instinctively looking to of ways to navigate that barrier or to remove it. And so I think there's a pressure, but it's the pressure you put on yourself because nobody wants you to succeed in that goal more than you do. So what's it like when you don't come first? You've been training towards that goal and on the day you get beaten, you get pipped or, you know, you come in second or you come in third or you have a bad day. What's what's that feeling like? I spent a lot more times coming not first than I did coming first. But I think I learned something from every experience and I think being motivated by objectives and goals and outcomes you have to focus on process and the great thing about swimming is you can break it down into distance and time and it's full of numbers of course there'd be some times where like if it was the biggest race of the year or if I was like the Paralympics for example I mean I won in Beijing which was great but if and if I hadn't I don't know how I would have felt like Mm. I don't know because I won so Mm. but then in Athens when I didn't win and I came second it was my first Paralympic Games it was my first Paralympic medal I, I was over the moon to get a silver 
But then you speak to some people who win and actually because their heart wasn't in it or their head wasn't in it or something else was happening at the time, then it wasn't the joyous occasion they thought it was going to be. And I think that's the biggest lesson I took out of sport and swimming was that you have to have outcomes that you're in control of and objectives that are purely based on you and are not subjective and are not reliant on how anyone else does because otherwise you risk you run the risk of never being fulfilled just so i understand what you're saying is success for you therefore it's subjective it's it's what you personally feel that if everybody else is saying you've got to come first you know and you don't and you internalize that it can be bad but what you're saying is for you step-by-step accomplishment and you achieving your own goals is that is that a correct characterization yeah, I think that I think that's a fair analogy. I think because the reality is right that you could go into that race and you could swim faster than you've ever swum before. If someone else happens to do that even one hundredth of a second quicker than you on that day, then you still don't win the gold medal. Yeah. And there's nothing more that you could have done. You know, I'd be lying if I hadn't didn't say that came with age as well, and that came with experience. Because yeah, when I was younger, the goal was to win a gold medal. Yes, but the reality, like. You could have that same race for a week and a different person could win it every day. Everything has to come together in that right moment. I don't think it would be healthy to judge yourself purely on the just one element of a result in one race. When you were 23 years old, tragically, your, your mum passed away. And as I understand it, you were en route to compete in the Paralympics in Beijing at that point, And you went on to compete how did you maintain a sense of keeping your eye on that goal with this with this personal tragedy having just occurred to you well firstly i was 22 because my my year of birth is 85 but i'm right at the end of it in december so it always throws people but yeah the, the, the crux of the story is correct so my mum had been diagnosed with cancer for about 11 months and yeah so i landed in beijing to the news that sadly Unfortunately, my mum had passed away. So, um, and I guess it was one of those situations. I weighed up my options and I could go home and nobody would have blamed me um, or I could stay and no one would have thought anything of me. The other part of that story is that I actually had, had, had a really bad shoulder injury in my good, my, my most functional limb, my left arm. And so I hadn't actually swum a stroke of breaststroke for six months. And and I think in that moment, if I could have gone home and it would have brought my mum back, then I, I would have, like, in a heartbeat. But like I said, I weighed up my options and there was nothing I could do about it. Like, absolutely, absolutely nothing I could do about it. Um, but I thought that I owed it to her and to me and to everybody who was involved. I was in no fit state to win that gold medal but I'd done 12 years of work to get me to that point at this point I'd lost the most important thing in my entire life so I had nothing more to lose it's just a race it just simplified everything for me and that that was probably the moment in my life that created the biggest change in my mindset that that monumental like moment in my life actually set me up for the rest of my life in the way that I changed my mindset on things and, and like what was important to me and and how much I should commit to things and what I should tolerate and reassess all my relationships because it made me realise that we only have 
a finite amount of time, no matter who we are. Um, and I, so I think, I don't like, that's a very long answer and a very long way of saying, I think I just, I just went into autopilot. <laughs> I, I, I think that's such an affecting and really, really honest answer i think i kind of in a, relate to the fact that you say that when critical things happen sometimes terrible things in a way it has a way of simplifying and maybe even positive comes out of that and there's no right or wrong answer in that situation you're the one that lives with the outcome you're the one that lives with the decisions and, and as long as you can justify them to yourself then nothing else really matters hi it's richard here sorry for the interruption I'll keep this quick. This production's made by Earshot Strategies, a podcast company founded in 2017 by me. I'm passionate about podcasts, which is why I set up Earshot. It helps a range of clients make the most of the wonderful medium of audio. We've worked with huge multinational companies like Airbus, international organizations, as well as universities, think tanks, publishers, nonprofits and many, many others. We work with them from idea to ear, from providing expert advice on changing an existing podcast or launching a new series, through to training, production and promotion. To see and hear more about what we do, visit our website, www.earshotstrategies.com. Now, with no further interruptions, back to the podcast. How do you deal with life in a way after, you know, in the wake of the roaring crowds and the acclaim? And I say this partly because I was a, a journalist and I used to go out into the field and report and it was all terribly exciting. And then that phase of my life passed. And I remember a sense of kind of initially of disorientation. So I'm curious to know if there's a parallel in obviously your achievements were far greater, but in what you did. For me, there was never a. I always appreciated that I wasn't naturally the best swimmer. I had to work really hard. And so I didn't I didn't have an ego in that sense. But I think I did have an identity and it did give me structure and it gave me purpose. Like I never I never questioned why I was getting up in the morning. And it's true that you build yourself to a four-year cycle, you go to the Paralympics, you're exactly where you train to be, and and it's the one moment that you've built up to when you're with all your peers. And then you come back and you're like, well, now what? For me, as I got older, I tried to reflect on what it was I was enjoying about the sport and what I loved about it and what was it still the most important thing to me? Was it still my first thought in the morning? Was it still the thing that I was willing to to fight through any barrier for? And if it wasn't, then what else would give me that same motivation and that same feeling and that same sense of purpose? But you do have to give yourself time, like with anything in life, to reflect and to gather your thoughts, gather your opinions, go through that period of of mourning. Because it happened to me, like when I finished school and when I went to university, it happens at every like every major change in your life. It's just some of them are more important than others, or some of them matter to you more than others. Reflection is part of the process. And you have to allow yourself to feel all of those emotions that come with it. And don't judge yourself for any of them. My biggest challenge when I retired, I was ready. Like I knew it was time. I had other options. I'd already started working in other areas. 
but was like trying to convince other people that I was doing the right thing because a lot of people can relate to the concept and the dream of being an elite athlete. So people question, why would you ever stop? But actually, as soon as you don't enjoy it anymore, it becomes instantly the hardest job in the world. Like it goes from being the best opportunity to like quite a difficult one, which is why you see some athletes retire quite young, even even when you perceive that they might have a lot of years left in their in their career. Sounds to me like you're you're a pragmatist at heart, more than as it were romantic. You know, you have this desire to continue to be all your life, define yourself by by your athletic achievements. I learned so much from being an athlete. One of the big values that I learned from para sport and the Paralympic movement was it's an example of what is possible. And actually, if anything, in the rest of society, we can move the dial more quickly because we have the lessons that we learned from the Paralympic movement. That's why then it led me to what I do now in the sense that I realised that I had an opportunity to help other people, but not just people who are disabled or those that live with disabilities, but people who don't understand what it's like to live with a disability or aren't comfortable around disability or don't appreciate the disabling elements of society um, and create a safe environment to discuss them, explore them and provide alternative solutions to remove any of the unnecessary barriers that exist. You brought us on very naturally to the Ability People, mm-hmm. TAP, which you co-founded in 2018. So is the emphasis there upon changing the attitudes of others towards people who have a disability or a difficulty or an obstacle, or is it about empowering the people who have those, who have those difficulties? The short answer is it's both. Let's go with the people who live with disabilities first. Those people need the opportunity to learn to advocate for themselves because many have had only ever had negative experiences or have never been in a position where they've seen someone like them or they've had a role model or they've, they've ever been given the inkling to think that it would be okay to speak up for what they need because... The only way that they can even dream of being invited to an opportunity was to try and be as much like everybody else as you can. But actually, that's so limiting. And like we said about me being an athlete and the soft skills I learned, people with disabilities and those that are disabled in any environment have many of those soft skills because they're continuously navigating an environment that isn't set up for them. But... Because of the way that disability is represented, assumptions are made that are just not talked about. And so that's where, at the ability people, the two, it's not an either or, it's a blend of both. Both problems are very significant in bridging this gap and and closing the gap, actually, between people who live with disabilities and, as a result, are disabled and those who are not. How difficult is it to change an organization's culture to make it more understanding of exactly what you've been talking about? 
So I think once we're, once you're in and engaged with that organization, it's really not that difficult at all. And actually at the ability people, our entire team has a disability or an impairment or a medical condition of some kind that means they can be authentic but, and they can represent the change that they are looking for others to embrace. But they can also provide that education and exposure for the client to difference. So basically, help them understand that fundamentally we're all human. If you create an authentically inclusive environment where people have choice on how they operate or how they present themselves, then all of a sudden, those barriers are removed and that additional assistance from another human being isn't necessarily required. People don't still don't understand that disability doesn't have to be disabling. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, so what is success for you now? On a personal level, success is ultimately happiness. If I'm content with what I'm doing and I'm enjoying it, then that for me is success. In a professional sense, if I can continue to move the dial on authentic inclusion and on people's understanding of disability and and improving circumstances and conditions, maybe for a whole organization, maybe for a team, maybe for an individual, then for me, that is also success. So I think success comes in many different forms. And I think it's also appreciating the size of the beast that we're trying to all battle here and appreciating that you you can't change the whole world in one go but you can change someone's world and if an individual or a group of people end up with a more positive and a more equitable experience in whatever walk of life that they are trying to travel down then that for me is also success. Liz Johnson, thank you very much. Always thank you for having me. <laughs> so that was Liz Johnson. And I think it's safe to say that she's an absolutely fascinating personality. To me, she's defined by two Ps, primarily positivity and pragmatism. She was born with a, a disability, but she has does not certainly define herself by what she is unable to do. She defines herself by what she can do, what she has done, and by having a positive aspect on life. And also pragmatism. I mean, she said there, you know, about changing attitudes. She knows, you know, where the limitations of what she's doing with the ability people lies and, and what the constraints are. But more than just those two qualities, I think there's something else which seems to be a driving force in her, and that is happiness. She said that she was continued to swim so long as she enjoyed it and she got satisfaction from it and that seems to be one of the major drivers she is constantly got this half smile on her face when you speak to her and I think it's because she seems to enjoy and relish what she is doing she clearly does enjoy and it's very committed to the ability people but she's not doing it through gritted teeth she's doing it with a smile and those, the collection of those qualities, I think, make Liz Johnson exactly what she is and the, and the success in who she is. 
So if you enjoyed this episode, please do make sure and go listen to the other wonderful interviews in this series and in the last series. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review and let us know what you think of the show. I'm Richard Myron. The producer is Anouk Mie, and this has been an Earshot Strategies production. All the best. <laughs>